0: The best performing titles that we've seen for me have been How I Something.
1: I think of you as the really smart friend that you know from school, who's like figured a bunch of stuff out, but the friend.
0: When you explain something to a friend, you approach it in a very different way than if you're trying to perform being a YouTuber or perform being a writer.
1: How do you balance that?
0: Level one is get going, level two is get good, and level three is get smart. Quantity is more important than quality in the early days because the strategy, while you suck at execution, is completely pointless. Like strategy, when you're good at execution, suddenly starts to make sense. I just love it. It's so good. What he said to me was like, if you had to nail it down to one secret, just the one thing that really helped you in your journey of productivity, what would that one thing be? And I said...
1: One of the things that you have spoken about is the difference between how to and how I in your writing process. And I know that you've struggled with perfectionism and stuff like that. How has that idea, that concept, just helped you write?
0: Hmm. Yeah. So when I was working on my my book for the first time, this would have been about three years ago, I got really stuck with the imposter syndrome thing around feeling like, "Ah, you know, who am I to write a book? Who am I to write anything? Why would anyone listen to what I have to say? Um, And... I was speaking to my writing coach about this and he said that this is a, you know, a really, a really common problem. Like a lot of writers get imposter syndrome. Even the people who have been doing it for like decades still feel that sense of like, you know, that sting of like, oh, putting myself out there. I'm not sure what I have to say is good enough. Mm-hmm. And so the framing that he taught me was that there's a difference between being a guru and being a guide. Hmm. And if you try and approach writing from being a guru, it's quite hard because well, for, for a lot of people, it makes you feel like you're the guru on the mountaintop and you have all the answers. And to be honest, for most of the things that we write about, there are no real answers. It's just things that have worked for some people that might work for the right. readers. And so mm-hmm. shifting thinking about it from being a guru to more of being a guide is how I approach writing, YouTubing, every, every single thing I do. I'm not imagining I'm the expert and I have the answers. I'm imagining, hey, I'm just a fellow traveler along the same path as the reader or the viewer and I'm just sharing the curiosities that I've learned along the way. And that's why when it comes to, for example, my YouTube videos, the best performing titles that we've seen for me have been ones where the title has been how I type really fast. Totally. How I rank that's first like at your, Cambridge.
1: That's like your Cambridge yeah, piece, exactly. right? like yeah. I was, It was actually really interesting. I was on your YouTube channel recently. I was looking at the best performing videos of all time. And a surprising percentage of them are really old. And they're basically like how I did really well in medical school, how I figured out how to memorize this or that. And there's a few interesting things there. The first is around production value. Maybe it's not super important or maybe, I don't know, like I think that's something that we can figure out. And then another thing is there's a relatability in those videos of like, hey, I just sort of figured this out for myself and I'm just going to share what's working for me. And it'd be interesting to then figure out how does that translate into your writing and then where do you struggle to get that into your writing?
0: Mm. Yeah, so this is something that... So we're in the final week of editing for the book now. And um, we've been going kind of back and forth with the editors on the introduction because the introduction is really the most important part of the book after the title and thumbnail, i.e., you know, the front cover. Um, and in the introduction, we're <laughs> trying to figure out how to, how to frame my expertise. So it's a book about productivity. Um, and what the editor was saying is that in the past, he and the, and the team at Penguin made a bit of a mistake in that they were trying to present me as a sort of professorial authority. That, hey, this guy's a doctor, this guy went to Cambridge, this guy's fancy, and therefore he has the answers. And they've realized that over the last few years of this, of this journey and kind of seeing how the YouTube channel has grown, that actually we're not trying to present me as Daniel Kahneman. Like, that's, that's not the game we're playing. Instead, the game we're playing is of being a uh, citizen expert. Like, I'm just a random person who's just been obsessed with productivity for 15 years and here's what's worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you too.
1: I think of you as the really smart friend that you know from school that you always go to whenever you need some study tricks, who's like figured a bunch of stuff out. But the friend,
0: mm. the friend
1: and someone who you can hang out with.
0: Mm. That's a nice way of thinking about it. That's kind of like how I think about, um, I guess, teaching my audience on YouTube or or in the writing uh, I start all of my videos with the phrase, hey, friends. Yeah. I start my newsletter with the phrase, hey, friends. Um, and g- even just just that, that sort of sprinkle of, I guess, yeah, some people might think it's contrived. But to me, it really helps me frame the conversation in a way that, no, these are genuinely my friends. I'm not the expert. I'm just a a guide who's, like, helping out wherever I can
1: totally. You're talking about your writing coach. What's that relationship like?
0: Yeah. So, um, in the early days of the book process, um, a mutual friend of ours, Pat Flynn, introduced me to, um, a guy called Azul who sort of became my writing coach. Uh, and he, I worked with him for about a year, um, from getting the book through like the proposal stages, the sort of putting, putting the structure together. And it started off as a sort of Oh, I thought a writing coach is someone who will just sort of, uh, you know, keep you accountable and help you hand in, you know, just like set deadlines for you, essentially. But it turned out to be more of a therapist than anything else. Because as I started the writing journey for the book, there were all these emotions and fears and insecurities that came up. And Azul was really good at, like, you know, navigating those and helping me, in a very gentle way, realize that, oh, this, this writing thing is hard and it's okay, and it's okay if emotions come up, and we would talk through the emotions. So I kind of thought of them as more, more like therapy sessions rather than coaching sessions, as it were. Emotions, fears,
1: insecurities, what came up for you?
0: A lot of it I can, I can boil down to the, that phrase imposter syndrome, feeling like, who am I to be writing a book about productivity? Who am I to be writing a book at all? A book is like this thing, right? It's, a, it's like this thing that has gravitas, whereas an email, a newsletter, who cares, a YouTube video, who cares? even though a YouTube video is going to be seen by more people than will ever than we'll ever read the book, right. uh, there is something about the the medium of the book that I, I had a lot of fear around and still have a lot of fear around to an extent. Um, so I think the imposter syndrome was one part of it and the other part of it was the sort of expectation and the, oh, this really needs to be good. And what does good mean? Well, you know, I'd really love for it to hit the New York Times bestseller list because mm-hmm. that is the, the badge of right. whatever. And, and what Azul helped me realize is that the way I, I've, I've approached my, you know, growing my YouTube channel for the first three years before I even entertained the idea of writing a book, it was all very much based on what are the things within my control? Hmm. You know, it's, it's within my control to make a video every week and for, it to, and for myself to feel proud of the video. And I've never had any kind of goal around subscriber count or around milestones or views or, or revenue or <laughs> anything like that. And all of that stuff has happened as a side effect of showing up and doing the work and controlling what's within my control. You know, it's like um, Bill Walsh, I think his name is, says uh, the score takes care of itself. Yeah. Whereas when it came to the book, I flipped that Hmm. philosophy on its head, and I was like, oh, this needs to be good. I want people to like it. I want it to hit the New York Times bestseller list, which means it needs to get a certain amount of sales and all of that. And all of these are things that are outside of my control. Totally. And so the thing I have to keep reminding myself and what Azul helped me and what the editors continue to help me with today is... Really focusing on what's, what's the point? Why are we doing this? And what's really the outcome I'm going, I'm going for? And the outcome is I just want to write a book I'm proud of. And if I can write and release a book I'm proud of, in theory, that should be good enough. The and still, then the score will take care of itself.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to a friend and I was talking through some different creative struggles that I was facing and... I was like, you know, I just want to wanna be a creative force. I want to be a creative force. And he's listening. He's like, why do you keep saying that you want to be a creative force? I'm like, what do you mean? Because that's what I want. And he goes, well, you've been a creative force in the past. When you were a creative force, were you walking around saying that you're a creative force? I was like, oh, no, I actually didn't say that one time ever. He's like, well, what was the thing that was driving you? and i was like oh it's really simple i would just get really interested in an idea then i would try to figure out that idea for myself and then i would try to e- explain it to others that's it he's like oh just do that stop worrying about being a creative force and it's the same thing mm. it's the score will take care of itself you're focused on a new york times bestseller list i'm focused on this identity of being a creative force neither of those are useful what's useful Fashion. is writing a book that you're proud of what's useful is just getting really interested in an idea. And, you know, Miles Davis has this line, famous jazz musician, and he says, sometimes it takes a long time to be able to play like yourself. And I think about this all the time, where when you first get into a new craft, you just try to be this thing. You try to either be like your inspirations, you try to change who you actually are so that you can perform, so that you can be well-liked, so you can be good at whatever is happening. And I think that, in jazz and writing and a lot of creative fields, just to get back to the person who you naturally are, but on the other side of skill, on the other side of hard work and dedication and being really analytical about your craft. I feel like that's where real excellence happens. And I just see both of us in these examples, just trying to be this manufactured identity rather than just doing what we can do.
0: Absolutely. This reminds me of a a conversation I had with our mutual friend uh, Danny Miranda a couple couple of days ago. We were talking about a struggle that I'm having right now, which is sort of feeling a sense of uh, apathy when it comes to making YouTube videos. Hmm. You know, I've been making YouTube videos for the last six years. They're literally the lifeblood of the business. And we brought our whole like mini studio setup to Austin for a few days. And when it came down to filming a video, just kind of haven't haven't really been feeling it, as it it were, uh, for the last couple of weeks. And we were kind of exploring this. And I realized that, you know, just to your point, I'd been really hanging on to this kind of ideal identity of wanting to be a thought leader for some reason. It's like, you know, whenever people ask me, oh, what do you, what, what's, your, what's your goal for the business or whatever that thing, I think it would like, oh, be cool to be a thought leader. I don't know why I've been become fixated on that phrase, uh, but what Danny and I were talking about, and he was like, he, you know, he asked, he asked, what does being a thought leader look like? And I said, well, it looks like having thoughts, and sharing them publicly, and learning stuff, and reading things, and then synthesizing things, and making videos, and writing about them. And he was like, "So why don't you just do that?" <laughs> and right. it, that really, that really hit me hard because I, th- I think it's something that Austin Cleon and Seth Godin talk about as well, about doing the verb rather than being the noun. Hmm. And I was in my effort to be the noun, to be a thought leader, I had gotten away from the thing that actually matters, which is doing the verb, which is. You know, having thoughts, sharing them, doing reading, doing like making videos. And if I think, what do, what do I want my life to look like? I don't want to walk around with a badge saying public fucking intellectual or anything like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I want to walk around in life being able to learn things and then share them in whatever medium that looks like. Yeah. And so if I focus on the verb rather than the noun, that also, I found that I found just having a wave of relief when he kind of pointed that out to me. And I think that speaks to this thing that we're talking about.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I find is if I'm just texting a friend, And they ask me a question and it's a good friend. I'll come back with sometimes a really interesting answer, but like a funny way that I said it, like there's a lot of personality and there's like a wit that I can have when I'm just like texting a homie. Whereas once I sit down to the computer, all of a sudden it's like, all right, posture up, you know, put everything down, got to make sure it's good. This is going to be shared in public. Uh Oh, you know, all that. And I feel like, once there's like a public display on, I will go from doing the thing, which is like when I'm texting a friend to then trying to be the thing, which is like once I'm trying to write in public.
0: There's a great um, moment I remember from a few years ago. This was back when I was working full-time as a doctor. And I remember I was in a, on a night shift and it was it was a little bit quiet. It was like during the pandemic. So like there weren't that many patients coming in for emergency stuff in, in, in the night. And a, a friend a friend from med school randomly texted me saying hey i'm thinking of getting started with investing you're the you're the guy you've done this investing stuff had any any tips and i started sort of texting him on my phone and then i kind of got a bit like yeah, thumbs are you know it's i can't type that fast on a phone yeah so i switched to like a notepad window on the crappy windows computers that the national health service uses in the uk and i just started typing out how i would explain investing to this friend and then i thought hang on why am i doing this on notepad i opened up notion which is where i plan my my youtube videos and I thought, if I'm just writing this, explaining it to a friend, let me just write it up as, you know, you know, as a potential YouTube video for further down the line. And so I typed out a bunch <clears> of stuff. This was in like February of 2020, March of 2020, something like that. I typed out a bunch of stuff. And then uh, I sent it to him. And he was like, cool, this is super helpful. And then six months later, I noticed that particular card was in my Notion video library thing. And I was like, huh, how to get started with investing. This is a pretty interesting video concept. And I'd already done, like, 90% of the work in explaining it to my friend. Yeah. And so we just added a few kind of fact checks to see, like, how much did the S&P return over the last, like, 30 years and stuff. And I just made it as a video. And that has been one of the highest performing videos on the channel. It's got in the region of, like, 8 million views. It's generated over $100,000 in revenue just that one video alone. And it's generated tens of thousands of subscribers and continues to do so to this day. And it's a video I made <laughs> because a friend texted me, how do I get started with investing and it was tapping into the, exactly this thing that you're saying. When you explain something to a friend, you approach it in a very different way than if you're trying to perform being a YouTuber or perform being a writer.
1: It's weird, right? It's just weird how like that performance sort of blocks you. You know, I notice even when I'm trying to write formally, I can do about 1,000 to 1,500 words in a session. And a lot of times, very conscious of the clock. But then like, oh my goodness, if I'm like a little angry about something, a little ticked, and I'll go on Slack and I can do a little rant, I can do that same word count in like 25 or 30 minutes. And I think there's a few things going on there. First, like the, the, the words, the language is like tumbling out of me. You know, it's like the emotions are like a gale force that are taking the words out of me. It's not like some heady, very well-planned thing. I often think that if you're surprising yourself when you're writing, that is the conditions that you need in order to write well because there's like a, an authenticity and a realness to that that makes the words, um, the reader can feel that. Mm. And then also, I think that when you're writing to somebody, you don't have this sort of, it's almost like a wall of mirrors. Like, what are all these people going to think? What are all the different ways that, are, that this is going to be interpreted? And there's a concept in writing that the universal is in the specific. And that if you can share a really specific example, something about that has a universal appeal. And I think that in some ways it might be similar that if I can just write to one person, if I can just write to you, something about that feels so genuine that it also ends up paradoxically reaching more people. Mm. Because sometimes you just read work that clearly is made for everybody, but it's diluted, it's watered down, it's bland, it's vanilla, it's boring.
0: Yeah, I think that's so true. It's like... But it's one of those pieces of advice. I like. I've 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 known that piece of advice for so many years that like, speak as if you're talking to one person. Write as if you're I don't talking know to how to follow person. it. I think exactly, it's true. <laughs> I think it's so true. And I find I find in my life the times where I accidentally do it, I'm like, yeah. oh wow. But like consciously, actually writing as if it's just speaking to one person, that's something I I really struggle with. Even like in in terms of in terms of making videos, where, you know, especially as the numbers grow and there's this sort of pressure and expectation of like. This video, you know, it's going to get minimum 100,000 views, but like hopefully 500K, maybe even a million views. That's a lot of people. And that, thinking about that...
1: How many football stadiums is that? Yeah,
0: exactly. All of that crap. You know, thinking about that makes me generalize everything because I'm like, well, this example is too specific. And what if this person's a student? And what if they don't have a job? And what if they're a parent? It's like blah, 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 blah. And then the whole thing becomes bland and abstract because I'm trying to stay so high level to be applicable to everyone that it maybe sometimes loses the universality of it. And one thing I noticed with a a couple of videos recently where I I had that thought in the back of my mind of just, like, go deep, go specific. People really like it. I did a video the other day which was, like, you know, 20 minutes long, had a lot lot of screen sharing, a lot of very specific instances about how I manage my time using a Google Sheet template. And that video has been our highest-performing video of the last six months, and it was so specific. And I was so worried that, like, this is not going to be applicable to anyone because, like... You know, if I show how I manage my time, like I'm an entrepreneur, I can do what I want. Like most people watching this aren't going to be able to manage that. But but people took their own lessons away from the specific example that I used. And in the past, I would have been tempted to make that very general, but then watered, it would have been watered down as a result.
1: So how did you think about this as you were writing the book?
0: As I was writing the book, I was really imagining, you know, I I heard this piece of advice from Tim Ferriss at one point where he said he was struggling to write the four-hour work week. And then he decided, you know what? Let me just scrap it. And he opened up a Gmail compose window Hmm. and just wrote the first however many tens of thousands of words just as if he was writing to a friend. And so I had that piece of advice in the back of my mind as I was working on the first draft, which was about a year ago. Um, Just like really just trying to be trying to play fast and loose with it. And the thing that actually got the first draft done, I'd been sort of sort of struggling and procrastinating on it for absolutely ages, was I went on a team retreat to Wales uh, and we got this big Airbnb with my team. And the objective of the trip for the team was that no one's not allowed to, like, we're not allowed to do anything that looks like work. And so mm. everyone had to work on, like, a personal project or a hobby or something like that. Whereas my task for the trip is that every single day, I'm going to do the first draft of one of the chapters. And so from morning, to, from morning to night, my only job that day was I just need to finish this first draft of this, of this particular chapter. And the chapter is like 10,000 words. So it was like 10,000 words in a day. Every day? Every day. Kept it up for seven days, managed to get about 70,000 words done, give or take. The, the, the first drafts of those chapters. And it was because in that moment, I was playing fast and loose. I was like, you know what? You know, there's this other piece of advice I got from Safi Bakal, I think, who wrote a book called Loonshots, Loonshots, yeah. where he says, uh, FBR, fast, bad, wrong. Hmm. <laughs> FBR, fast, bad, wrong. And I was like, you know, it's, it's got to be FBR. If you want to get 10,000 words done in a day, it's got to be fast, it's got to be bad, and it's got to be wrong. But that's okay, because you get the 10,000 words.
1: That's funny. I could never do that. There's no way. I mean, if you give me $10 million, I would not be able to type 70,000 words in a week. I'm serious. But one thing that I do that I think is similar is I use voice transcription all the time. So if I need to get something out, often I don't run to the keyboard because I'm like a slow typer. You're a fast typer, but I'm a slow typer. And so what happens is my brain will outpace my fingers. And so I can't actually, in my writing a lot, just have that raw expression. But what I can do is I can just speak into my phone, get it transcribed automatically. And I use an app called Scribe, which I love. It uses some fancy AI algorithm that they like to boast about that actually works incredibly well, like way better than Siri, way better than any voice transcription I've ever had. And then I get things out and then I just airdrop it onto my computer and then I just have that on one side of my screen and then I'll turn that into writing and I find that to just be really useful and also I just really enjoy it way more than I enjoy just sitting down and getting a first draft out by typing it.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'm kind of the same. I I don't particularly enjoy the fingers to keyboard type situation. Um, And yeah, I've definitely started experimenting more with the transcription stuff as well.
1: Yeah how scripted are your videos like is that something that you've played around with i think you've mentioned in the past oh we've tried scripted i don't like scripted so how do you think about that yeah that's a good question
0: um it's kind of a mix most of the videos are not very scripted at all um we'd maybe script the first like 10 20 seconds for the hook because that needs to be tight and sort of be you know have loads of ideas as to what that first 20 seconds is going to be but then beyond that usually I, the, I mean, the way I prepare my videos is I have an A3 pad with a Sharpie and I put the title of the video in the middle of the thing and then I try and just draw a mind map or a spider diagram. And I limit myself to somewhere between three or three and five points. Occasionally it'll be seven or nine or 14 if I'm feeling really overboard. But I try and limit, limit myself for this topic. What are the three to five things I want to say? And then those will be in the little boxes. And for each of these three to five things, there'll be like three little bullet points mm-hmm. offshoots of those. And then as I'm filming the video, I'll be working through the bullet points, and I'll be just sort of riffing on those. That's probably 80%, 90% of the content. But then the other 10%, we're experimenting with sort of more scripted videos where one of my researchers can get involved. If it's a topic where I don't have a lot of personal expertise, like we did a video on my evidence-based skincare routine. That we did really well. It did really well, yeah. We interviewed a a dermatologist, took Mm. the transcript from that, found the sound bites fact-checked some of the stuff, added a few studies, uh, fact-checked it with another dermatologist. Like, that required a lot of scripting, and that was basically word-for-word scripted, where I knew exactly what I was going to say. And so I'd look at the script, and then I'd say the line to the camera, look at the script, say the line to the camera, and try and make it sound natural. Because I, like, I, I, I don't like how I come across in a scripted fashion. And then a handful of videos we've actually played around with doing a teleprompter, so maybe like two or three videos. And that's been much easier to film, but also, it's also I have to keep in the back of my mind that I need this to sound natural. And so that's, that's always the trade-off, I think. I sound very natural when I riff, which is most of my content, and it's very easy and it's quite fun. But I think to unlock content that, is, that requires more scripting, where I'm speaking about evidence stuff that I, I don't just have in my head. <sighs> yeah, just trying to get that balance between teleprompter and coming across natural.
1: You know, every now and then you'll, you'll come across some Reddit post. That was clearly written by somebody at 11:45 on a Saturday night. They got mad about something and they just went to the keyboard and they boom boom boom, boom 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 boom. Don't edit it. Don't even review it. There's typos everywhere and you can just feel the passion in whatever is being written there. But some of facts are wrong. <laughs> there's typos all over the place, but you can sort of feel that and also the density of content isn't always super high. And then there's another version which is really scripted, really refined, well-researched, evidence-based. But sometimes that doesn't have the energy and the realness that's coming out in writing. And I just feel like there's some sort of trade-off there. But what I just am trying to figure out is like, how do you match the density, which I think density is like a recipe for good communication, right? Because you want to have A lot of personality a lot of good ideas a lot of good points in a small amount of words but then also you don't want the compression to dilute your personality and how do you balance that
0: that's the that's the ongoing struggle um we have the struggle with the youtube videos where i tend to talk for longer than is reasonable about a thing and then the editors are like okay we're trying to optimize for retention here so like you know, I'd, I'd repeat a few things, but like in the repetition, there's a bit more nuance. And so they're, they're having to constantly play that game of, do we cut out this, fra- this line or this 20 second segment or do we keep it in? And they're literally juggling that exact thing of like, technically it reduces the density of information, but it does add personality. And so keeping those levers in mind, but then also with the book where, you know, the first draft that we said we handed in was like 110,000 words. And that is just unreasonable for a book. Um, and we're trying to get it down to 65 or seventy thousand words and so there are a lot of areas in which i have been more personal and given personal examples where the editors have said oh the personal examples are too unrelatable because they're either either from medical school or from life as a doctor or from being a youtuber which are all like very specific things that like uh most people can't relate to especially if we're trying to go after a mainstream audience like they'll get turned off by the whole like too many youtube examples
1: yeah dude you're sort of like a rapper you know you're like you know, rappers start off and they're, yeah. you know, they're 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 really relatable at the beginning. Comedians are the same way, right? They're really relatable at the beginning. And they have this life and they're talking to people and the people are like, yes, the things that you deal with are exactly what I deal with. Yeah. Wow. There's such a strong connection. And then you become super successful and you're flying private jets. You're performing in front of thousands of people. And... I think that what must be hard for rappers for comedians is once you get that success. Once you have all those things, how do you express yourself in a way that still feels relatable? And I think this is this this happens all the time. Like no one's going to laugh at your joke about what it's like to like the funny things that happen in first class. Like it's just not as funny mm. or as relatable as like, you know, I was sitting in row 34F mm. on a flight and like the person in front of me leaned their chair back, it rocked my knee, my drink spilled, my you know laptop fell. Like that's way more relatable, and this shows up all the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that we that we've kind of realized in in sort of the book editing process is you know I, I guess we're talking about how do how how do we bring the personality across, but in a way that is still relatable without over egging on personal examples. Hmm. And the the sort of the, the way that we're we're trying to do this is kind of recognizing that personality can come can come across in the voice of the writing. Mm. It doesn't only need, only only need to come across in the personal examples. Right. And so we've realized like the way I write a paragraph with like a little bit of dry humor, sometimes in the first person, like you know, here's what works for me. That gives the gives the the writing a voicey kind of personal kind of feel, even if we've cut the example of like. So when I was a YouTuber and I film videos in front of a camera, here's how I struggle with the thing. And so that's kind of the balancing act, figuring out how do we sprinkle in the voice without making using too many unrelatable examples.
1: I think Paul Miller did a very good job of this. Writing about himself, having voice, and doing it in a way where you can abstract lessons from his writing. Where it doesn't feel so top-down, it feels like, hey, I just walked this path, this pathless path. This is, now that you're a reader, this is, you can follow this path. Here's some things to look out for. Mm -hmm. And it isn't very top-down and authoritarian. It's much more sort of like you. Hey, I'm your friend who just did this, and you might want to quit your job, and some things to look out for.
0: That's true. Yeah, I, I I I really like Paul's writing because it's so personal. But then, you know, there's a, a, stu- a study that came out recently um, that a friend linked me to, which is, uh, was, was looking at a kind of the frequency of highlighted, highlighted things in, like, books and stuff on mm. Kindle. Mm. And they found that sentences that were you, that were addressing the reader, were, like, way more likely to be highlighted than, than sentences that were I. Right. And I was like, God damn it. There goes my whole thesis about, like, <laughs> how I sentences are really good because people like personal. And then I think of my own, my own highlighting habits on Kindle. I tend to abstract a lesson from a personal example, but I tend not to highlight it. The thing I tend to highlight is the pithy, tweetable, therefore you should do X, or just an interesting way of framing or like revealing the the truth, which tends not to be personal. And so again, that, that's again got me up caught up in this quagmire of like, what is this balance between the personal and the kind of thing where you're telling the reader to do something?
1: Yeah. That might be kind of like an EDM show, where you ever watched a video of only bass drops
0: no i don't know i don't even know what that means
1: so like you know (laughs) you know how it's like electronic music there's like you know it'll go do 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 and then you know like the bass will drop but there's like the build-up and then the bass drops it's like and then everyone goes yeah okay you know (laughs) i'll take you one for it but like what's funny is if you watch a video like if you type in Ultra Music Festival 2017, Best Bass Drops. Like the video is not good. Yeah. Like it's not good. It's not pleasurable to listen to. And the point is you need the buildup in order yeah. to get the bass Ooh. drops. And so even though the bass drops are like the big thing, you only have bass drops. It's not good. And so that would be my worry about listening to that Kindle highlight advice too closely is you, that might only be the case because there's dead time in other places. That's true.
0: That's a That's a really good point. Like, the way I've been thinking about the Kindle highlight thing is we want we want to highlight at the end of every paragraph or at the end of every two or three paragraphs. Right. So the paragraph is, like, personal and stuff. And at the end of it, there's, like, the pithy, tweetable summary of what's just been said. Yeah. And I find when I read books and they have just that final line, the final word on the thing, I'm like, yes, highlight, highlight, highlight. Yeah. But you're right, it does need the build up. Otherwise, it, it, it loses its impact.
1: It's the same thing with comedy, right? Like, the way that I think about a comedy set is you basically have some 60 to 75 minute theme and then like if you think of that as a line then within that you have all these two to five minute chunks Hmm. that then all have their own sort of narrative within them and then their own punchline but same thing with comedy right like the laughter comes because of the build up before it and so there's a funny thing where yes more laughter is better more laughter is better but then you can almost get to a point where if you have laughter every single second, it's like that doesn't really work. There's a natural tension and release, mm. flow, rhythm.
0: Yeah, that's a good. That's a good way of thinking about it. Um, it reminds me of you know the criticism that a lot of nonfiction books will get of like, oh, this could have been a blog post, yeah, or this could have been a tweet thread or something like that, yeah. where someone will take the I guess the punchlines, like those little highlightable bits at the, end of, at the end of the paragraphs or the end of the pages, will say, well, that was the point. Cool. So, wh- well, why is this a book? This person is just making a point and then fleshing it out with a bunch of superfluous examples and, and stuff. And one thing I've been in, in, increasingly realizing is that, yes, you can read a short-form summary of a book. Um, and yes, you can read like this. You know I, I, you know, I just read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Here's a summary of my, my, my key highlights, mm-hmm. a thread that kind of stuff and they'll get like millions and millions of views. But you lose something in not seeing the quote fluff, like the build up. Mm-hmm. Just like a comedy set with just punch lines or a musical performance with just climaxes is not that interesting. Similarly, you learn so much more when you have the mic drop moment or the, the bass drop moment after the appropriate build up mm-hmm. so that you really feel feel the advice that's being given rather than just reading it in a Twitter thread.
1: Well, here's a very simple way to think about this. Like, what do you like? What is a book that you read and you're like, I want to write a book just like that?
0: I <laughs> think the most recent one has been The The Psychology of Money by Morgan mm. Housel.
1: So what does he do well there?
0: What he does well there is that he's got a lot of chapters, like 20-something 20, 20 chapters, 20 chapters actually. Uh, he tells a short story in each one, and there is a message at the end. There is like a, a takeaway at the, at the end of the short story. And it's just great. It's very digestible, it's so very manageable. Ugh, oh, I just love it. It's so
1: good. So that's really interesting. Ugh, oh, I just love it. It's so good. Okay, so explore that for me. Like, what makes you say, Ugh, oh, I just love it. It's so good. Like, you talk about stories. You talk about the digestible framework at the end, but that, I think, is let's continue to excavate this. What's behind that?
0: Mm. It's effectively a listicle. A listicle of just like 20 somewhat unrelated lessons about money, which are just kind of interesting. But, you know, there's, there's like a, a, th- a thread that ties them together, which is that money is about psychology. It's not just about the economics of, of the thing. Now, for each of these 20 different lessons, he's written it as if it's a blog post, basically. Which is, you know, each one is maybe 1,500 words-ish. Yep, yeah, something like that. 1,500 to 2,500 words. There is an interesting story. The story is not necessarily of some someone like super famous or some something that, on the that something that that to the outside world would someone would think, oh wow, that's a that's really interesting, but it's an interesting story that speaks to something about human psychology when it comes to money that everyone can either relate to personally or that has seen so has seen someone else kind of fall into that particular trap, and then you've got his personal commentary and the sort of timeless lesson at the end of it which feels very satisfying because like oh wow I feel like I've gotten that dopamine hit from learning something the story was engaging so it kept me reading I've got the dopamine hit from the lesson and then he always has a line at the end of the at the end of each chapter that segues onto the next one hmm. um, and that line makes you want to turn the page and you go to the next chapter yeah. it's like there's another story it's like we love stories we love lessons and I think for something like the psychology of money like I kind of think there's one one way of approaching the book is writing it like Morgan Housel does, like a listicle of short stories and stuff. Um, another way of approaching it would be, I guess, more like what James Clear did with Atomic Habits, where there is a thesis, i.e. tiny tiny habits, remarkable results. Yep. There is like a four-part framework, or like the four-hour work week, four-part framework of D, E, A, L, delegate, elevate, automate, liberate, whatever the thing was, yeah. and you work through the framework. And I think when you're being introduced to a topic for the first time, I wonder if the framework is better, because i never read a book about habits. And so if it was just 20 disparate lessons about habits with stories, it's actually less useful than giving me a framework that I can follow to build better habits, cue, craving, response, reward, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I've read loads about money. There isn't really a framework about thinking about money. The psychology of money lends itself more to a listicle bite size. Oh, here's an interesting lesson. Oh, here's another one. Here's another one. So I think like, those two different ways of, of approaching writing. I vibe with both of them, but in the context of The Psychology of Money, I really liked the listicle, blog posty way that Morgan Housel wrote
1: it. Yeah. I want to hear about sort of process of distillation and framing through how you got to feel-good productivity. Like, you didn't start there. So what was the process that you used to get there? Like, I remember when we were together in London, you had the pilot, the plane, and the engineer. And then you're like, oh, I dropped that. This is where I've ended up now.
0: Yeah. Um, so this was a long journey of about three years. Um, initially, when Penguin approached me in late 2020 to write a book, uh, I mean, it was, it was always going to be a book about productivity because that just makes, makes sense. And so we were trying to figure out, like, what should the title be? And I just sent them some notes from an online course I'd made about productivity where I talked about the productivity equation. You know, productivity equals output divided by time multiplied by fun multiplied by, like, directionality or so, you know, something to that effect. And they were like, oh yeah, this sounds cool, cool, here's a big deal just off the back of the notes from this online course. Um, and so we got the big deal with Penguin UK then. But when it came to actually writing up the proposal to pitch to US publishers, US publishers were not keen on just getting like a random mess of thoughts. Um, so Penguin had a, lot, had, a, had a lot of faith in me <laughs> at, the, at that point. And so it took like another year to figure out what what is this book actually about. And initially it was the productivity equation, the pilot, the plane, the engineer, It was like a metaphor going all the way through that productivity is really about these three things. But then I spoke to a chap called David Moldauer, who is a kind of book proposalist kind of guy um, that James Clear worked with for the proposal for Atomic Habits. And David, you know, about a year into this journey, gave me a lot of tough love. He was like, look, man, the productivity equation, it's not going to work. And I was like, why not? He was like, it's too complicated. There's like three different things. Equation, like the, the, the phrasing of that is kind of boring, like productivity itself is kind of boring and is sort of kind of dying as a concept like adding the word equation to it like just makes it feel like oh this is this book is a lot of work to read um and what he said to me was like you know you've got this this whole journey you've been a, you've been a doctor you've done this whole youtube channel you've built this like you know seven figure business Blah 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 if you had to nail it down to one secret just the one thing that really helped you in your journey of productivity what would that one thing be and I said, oh, that's easy. It was having fun. I found a way to make it, to make it more fun, find a way to make things more enjoyable. And he was like, yes, that is something we can work with. That is an interesting message. And so from that point on, the productivity equation shifted to being like something around framing productivity as about having fun, enjoying the journey, enjoying the process, playing around with like hundreds of titles, like, you know, Austin Kleon's book, like, you know, "Steal like an artist is like, can we, or show your work, can we do a phrase like that? Like, make it fun. Or make it easy, make it fun, or the joy of productivity, or joyful productivity, or like fun productivity, or like fun productive, is like unproductive fun productive, like all of those different ideas we were playing around with. Then after a bunch more work, a bunch more writing, um, getting getting our getting our editors involved, we kind of realized that the idea that oh, to be more productive, just just make it fun, it's it's almost it's it's too simple. It's like it's it's too simple so as to sound simplistic, and. Is easily then be like, oh well, not everything can be fun all the time. Like it's very easily dismissible, because it sounds kind of childish that like, oh, easy for this YouTuber to say, just make it fun. Well, fuck you, I've got a real job, kind of thing. And then I kind of dug into the science behind everything, and, and I, you know, started digging into the science behind all of this, spending loads of time reading research papers, and kind of realized that fun is just a subset of what's actually going on. What's actually going on is that to be more productive and to do more of, of, of what matters to you. Really, the key is positive emotions or positive affect, as the, you know, the scientists would call it. Um, and when you can experience positive emotions in your work or in your life, that generates energy, which makes you more productive. But also, positive emotions are just inherently linked to productivity and happiness and success. And the book by Sean Acker from you know, Harvard Professor is called The Happiness Advantage. Hmm. It's about how when you're happy in your job, you're not, it's, that makes you perform better. It's not that performing better makes you happy in your job. Mm-hmm. It's that genuinely being happy in your job makes you perform better. And so the whole idea then became the the, the the thesis around this idea of experiencing positive emotions in our work. And then one day in the shower, I was thinking positive emotions, positive <laughs> affect, like good vibes. There was that book by Vex King called Good Vibes, Good Life. I was like, good vibes, productivity? Maybe that could be it. Well, that's too plagiaristic. He's got good vibes, good life. It also is, it, it sounds a bit too millennial. Um, and then I was like, what's another word for good vibes? I was like, feel good. Oh, huh. feel good is another word for good vibes. What about feel good productivity? And that was the first time that I felt like a title actually encapsulated the philosophy. And if and then like when I got those words in my mind, I was like, oh, that's actually been it. Like this whole journey of med school, growing the YouTube channel, building the business, writing this book, it's all been with this idea of feel good productivity. If you want to do more of what matters to you and do it in a way that's sustainable and without burning out, you want to find a way to experience positive emotions in the work. And however hard the job might be and however boring it might be, there are always ways to sprinkle the feel good into it, to sprinkle the positive emotions, to sprinkle the fun. But it's not just about fun. It's deeper than fun. And that's that was sort of the journey in a sort of simplified way because we also experimented with like dozens of other different titles and none of them really worked until until we got the, uh, until we got to this one.
1: That's really good. That's really good. I laughed when you said the shower because that was so cliche. I know, it really was. (laughs) That's exactly how it came about. You know, it was funny because you gave a talk this week at a high school in Austin. And you were giving the talk and you're like, yeah, I don't even work that hard. And I was like, hold on here, hold on here. And I just looked at the entire high school. I was like, okay, Ollie works really hard. But the fact that he says that he doesn't work hard is... An incredible lesson in there and it's like the line from naval ravikant that i love which is do what feels like play to you but looks like work to others and that's what you found that's what you found and i think that like when i look at you i'm like yeah he's totally working hard and i remember when i was staying with you in london you know you would be in the bathroom listening to an audiobook and like you were very determined about constantly learning constantly thinking about things working through ideas but for you, it's it's feel good. it's joyful, it's fun. And that balance is what you figured out. and I think it's really it's really helped you helped you out well.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's an ongoing journey. There are times where it doesn't feel good, but where at at those times, in the past, I would have told myself that, oh, this is just discipline. I would have been like, well, Jocko says discipline equals freedom. and David Goggins says you got to suffer so much that your knees break and then and then you'll succeed. And I'm like, okay. In fairness, Goggins and... When is that
1: true? Because discipline equals freedom is a great tagline. Like, yeah. I think about that <laughs> a lot. So when is that true?
0: I think when it comes to doing stuff, there's, like, three different approaches. The first approach is the motivation approach, which is that, like, as lo- if, if I'm sufficiently motivated, I will then do the thing. There's this is this is great video on YouTube. It's, like, this... This, like, guru who's, like, telling a story of this guy, and he's like, you know, this guy, he wanted to get rich. And so, he, he you know, he, this guy, he... he he goes up to a guru, and he says, you know, how do I get rich like you? And the, and the guru asks him to come out to the beach at 4 o'clock you know, the next morning, and he says, I'll see you there. And the guy meets the guru on the beach, and the, the guy says, walk out into the water, walk out into the water. And the guy walks out into the water, and he's like, why is this guru making me walk out into the water? I want, I want to be rich in the water. And he keeps on walking, and then the guru is behind him and puts his head down under the water, and he like holds him down until his like body is thrashing and he's like nearly dead and something like that. And then at the last moment, just as he's about to pass out, the guru lets him up for air and the guy takes a big breath in. And the guru says, when you want to be rich so much, you know, as much as you want to breathe right now, that's when you're going to have success.
1: I've watched this video way too many times. I actually haven't seen it like five years. But he says, when you want to Succeed as much as you want to breathe, that's when you'll be successful. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so that encompasses the motivation method. If you are sufficiently motivated to do the thing, you will then do the thing. But, you know, a lot of people have motivation or they have motivation at times. Motivation waxes and wanes. Motivation is one of those fickle things that is really hard to sustain forever. And so you can want to succeed as much as you want to breathe. But and that certainly works for some people. But it, but it doesn't work for a lot of us. And then so the next stage up is that, the, what's the solution to this? And that's when discipline will often be invoked. It's like, okay, well, motivation is sort of waxy and wainy. But, you know, when your motivation is low, that's when you've got to use your discipline. And then you'll get words like discipline, willpower, grit, determination, perseverance, persistence, all of those things then are invoked there. And it's like, well, forget about motivation, just use discipline. If you're disciplined... Then, you know, there was a clip from uh, David Goggins on Chris Williams show, uh, Williamson's show where Chris asked, you know, it's four o'clock in the morning, you wake up and you want to stay in bed. Like, how do you how do you how do you make yourself get up? And he was like, you know, that's that's exactly why, you know, I get up and I'm hating myself and I'm like, you know, I'm just I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. And that's the discipline. And he this. It's, it's almost like this war with himself, this battle with his own mind to do the thing and be disciplined about it. Again, I think that works for a lot of people. Some of the time. Uh, but a lot of people will say they struggle with discipline. And I certainly struggle with discipline. I don't think of myself as a very disciplined person. And so I've I've always been a bit like, Ugh, motivation isn't quite the right answer because it wax and wanes. And discipline isn't quite the right answer because I don't really want to be at war with myself. So what's like, what's actually the way? And, you know, the conclusion that I've come to and the one that I try and live by is that, you know, A trying to unblock myself i call it kind of the unblock method figuring out why i'm feeling like not doing the thing like mm-hmm. where where are the barriers coming from is it fear is it anxiety is it uncertainty lack of clarity about what i'm actually trying to do is it just the inertia of not having got, gotten started yet and then once i've gotten started with it's about trying to make the process enjoyable so that yes maybe while i'm at the gym i don't quite feel like going for that extra rep but can i use strategies and mindset shifts to try and enjoy the process rather than essentially bludgeoning my brain into like disciplining myself. Yeah. I think there's a way to have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. And sometimes you need a dose of discipline, but I think you need a dose of discipline to get started with the thing. Sometimes, you know, with the best intent in the world, you've got full clarity on exactly what you need to do. You've addressed any uh, any of your underlying insecurities and you're sitting down to write or you're sitting down to film. And you just can't bring yourself to get started. That's where a dose of discipline of just like, you know what, I'm just going to write for five minutes. That helps. But then beyond the five minutes, I think what sustains it is the positive emotions, the feeling good, approaching it in a playful sense, feeling a sense of autonomy, control, power, ownership. All of these good feelings start to happen. And we start to get this flywheel of feeling good, generating energy, being productive. And at the end of it, we're like, damn, I'm so energized by that. Yeah. And you know, that's what some people might call the flow state.
1: Yeah, and I think that it's, there's a difference between today I need to be disciplined in order to do what I need to do. I'm feeling a little tired and like today I just got to keep going. There's a difference between that and every single day. Yeah, I'm trying to kill myself to basically get in the gym to make sure to get my writing done. If every single day you need to be doing that, there's something off. Like yeah. that's, that's, that's a challenge and I think you need to investigate that.
0: I think something like discipline works really well in small doses. Um, but relying on discipline is, at least for me, a recipe for unhappiness. And you know, most people once they become quote successful, uh, whatever however whatever metric you use to define it, they tend not to say like all of the pain was worth it for this one moment. Or maybe they do for like a few minutes, and then they'll be like, okay, crap, what what now? And you'll get all these Olympic athletes that like you know won the gold medal when they were young, and now they feel like purposeless and like they don't have anything to work towards. And as Miley Cyrus says in a song, it's the climb. It ain't about how fast you get there. Ain't about what's waiting on the other side. It's
1: the climb. Can you sing that for us? Ain't about (laughs) how
0: fast I get there. Ain't about what's waiting on the other side.
1: It's the climb. Something, something like
0: that. (laughs) doesn't really work.
1: It's about the journey. It's about the climb. Totally shows up everywhere. You know, one of the things that I that I've been dying to hear from you is you've spent so much money and time on hiring different coaches. What have you learned about that process, Um, how to find good coaches, how to hire them? Mm. How do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I've spent a lot of money on coaches in the last few years, and I wish I had started way earlier than that. Um, It's probably been the single highest ROI thing that I've ever done, I suspect. Yeah. Um, It's just really helpful. And and, and to me, it it almost seems like a no-brainer. Like, if you want to get better at tennis, you would hire a tennis coach. Yes, you can watch all the YouTube videos. Yes, you can play with your friends. But the day I hired a tennis coach, <laughs> I was like, oh, OK, this is how you really accelerate your improvement at tennis. Because there is a guy there. We're both, in, we're both here to serve me fundamentally. He's, he's working on my time so I can like, find a time that suits me and that he's, he's broadly available. He's got a bucket of like 100 balls. He's really good so he can reliably return the ball. He's really good, so he can reliably feed the ball into exactly the location where I need it to practice my backhand or my slice or whatever the thing might be. And, wow, I've just been improving so much faster. I'm getting in way more reps and getting the feedback way quicker. And also getting expert advice from someone who knows it rather than if I was trying to play with a friend We're spending half the time trying to grab the ball, the ball goes into the net. Neither of us is sufficiently good to be able to sustain a rally for more than 10 balls, whereas this guy can return any shot. I've like, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. And so similarly... You know, in, in the world of business, in the world of growing, growing a business, managing a team, leading a team, all of that stuff has been done by people before me and before whoever's reading this or, or, or watching or listening to this. And having a coach who's been there and done that just really accelerates the learning curve for so much stuff in business. And it was a coach slash, maybe it was like, you know, a mentor rather than a coach in that I wasn't paying him at the time, who encouraged me to hire my first employee He's the guy who encouraged me to outsource my my video editing for the first time two years into the journey of my YouTube channel. And that one decision to outsource video editing completely transformed my channel. The decision to hire hire a full-time employee when I could only just about afford it. He said, look, trust me, when you have a full-time employee on your team, you're going to find things for them to do, and I guarantee your revenue is going to go up. And immediately, within like two or three months, we started making online courses, and boom, our revenue skyrocketed.
1: That's really good. Tell me about some of your emotional journey of your relationship with your family through the lens of, I'm not going to be a doctor, which is what my family wants me to be. I'm going to make YouTube videos. And you know that you have the potential for a life doing that that you would never have as a doctor. And the vast majority of people that you met in medicine didn't even like their jobs that much. And yet there's this social pressure, this cultural pressure to go do that. How have you managed that? I think that's really common for people who want to break free of the traditional world of corporate life or medicine and go do their own thing.
0: Mm. Yeah, this was uh this was a real struggle back in the day. It's it's become less of a struggle now cuz I've been been out of medicine for a while now.
1: Cuz I've been crushing yeah. it.
0: Cuz I've been crushing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like honestly, it's it's one of those things I, I I I don't I don't think I I really realized how much their family and societal expectations were contributing to my decision to stay in medicine
1: they weigh on you man
0: yeah and when i was being interviewed on lewis ho's podcast school of greatness this was a remote interview that we did i just moved to london he was interviewing me about like productivity and passive income and we touched on this idea of like medicine and he asked you know what does my dream life involve i was like oh you know i'd like to work part-time as a doctor and then do the youtube thing and he was like why do you want to work part-time as a doctor like you've got you've got way more success as a youtuber And I rationalized it. I was like, oh, because, you know, I think my brand is more valuable if I'm a doctor as well. And like people follow me because I'm a doctor and I don't want them to be like, you know, I don't want them to unfollow me because now I'm just a YouTuber. Um, And he was like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's explore this. And we spent about half an hour in this interview where he was meant to be interviewing me about productivity advice. More like where he became my life coach slash slash therapist. And we sort of on air explored this idea. And I realized that it was a real scarcity mindset that was holding me back. It was this idea of like, oh, medicine is a, is a prestigious career. Medicine is a stable career. The YouTube career does not have any longevity. Who knows? I'm, I'm popular right now, but like who knows if I'm still going to be popular next year. It's ultimately a popularity contest at the end of the day, blah, 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 blah. And what he like really challenged me on was like, it was like two things. Number one was the money and number two was the passion. So on the money side of things, what he, what he challenged me on, he was like, okay, let's say your YouTube channel crumbles. You have nothing. And all you have is your laptop and the skills that you've already got. How long would it take you to make 100K a year? I was like, oh, probably like two years. And he was like, that's pretty good. But he, he, he bet that it would be more like three or six months rather than two years. And I was thinking about that. And I realized, yeah, the skills that I've gained through building this business and this channel are skills that will, that will stay with me forever, fingers crossed. And I actually could make money if I needed to. And so then he, then he kind of asked me, like, okay, if you knew you could make 100K doing your own thing, would you choose to go back into medicine? And I was like, well, hell no. If I, if I could do my own thing, of course I'd just do my own thing. And then there was the kind of the passion piece to it where he was like, if you could design your life however you wanted, would you spend any time in a hospital? And I was like, no, I actually wouldn't. Hmm. I tried it. I tried doing part-time work, but every half an hour I was thinking, I'd much rather be hanging out with my team right now, making videos, feeling creatively fulfilled. Right. And then like that conversation made me realize that all the stories and narratives and rationalization I'd be telling myself about why medicine was the smart choice was actually just fear holding me back. It was the fear of not making enough money. It was the fear of uh, being seen as a uh, sellout because I left a altruistic gig for the purpose of a money-making gig. It was the fear that... The only reason people are following my YouTube channel is because I'm a doctor who does stuff on the side. If I stop becoming a doctor and become a full-time YouTuber, that's less interesting. No one's going to follow me anymore. My life will crumble. I'll become homeless and broke, kind of thing. <laughs> that was sort of the thought process. And then underlying all of this was probably, and I haven't haven't fully explored this yet, but I'm sure there was some aspect of like I want my mum to be proud of me, and like parents ultimately want what's going to make the kid happy over the long term. But I think especially from an immigrant background, my mom's a doctor as well, uh, you know, stability is like the key thing and medicine gives you stability. And from her perspective, she's really worried. That's like, what is this YouTube career? It's not very stable. What if you're going to end up broken homeless kind of thing? And so I realized that it was, it was, it was that fear that was kind of transplanted into me where I was genuinely worried like, oh, crap, like if my YouTube channel dies, I'm going to be broken homeless. But actually, Lewis shining a light on that and actually saying it out loud made me realize, now, hang on, that's a pretty... Unrealistic outcome. And even if the YouTube channel does die, I'd way rather just start another business or get a job with any of my friends than I would go back to working in a, in, in a hospital for right. 60 hours a week.
1: Right.
0: So those fears were all there. And still to this day, there's part of me that almost has to apologize for it, I feel, where, you know, if I'd left a corporate career or like corporate law, no one, like, I, I feel like I wouldn't really care because it's like, whatever. But the fact that it's medicine, the fact that I have given up what is an altruistic thing where, you know, doctors in the UK don't earn very much money. They're currently on strike, like this week, to try and campaign for wage increases. Most of my friends are still in are still in medicine and genuinely like saving lives. And I've given all of that up for the sake of, to my mind, making silly videos on the internet that are just making me rich beyond my wildest dreams, while all my friends are struggling to get by, but doing the good work, doing God's work of of medicine. That still plagues me a little bit. And I haven't really fully figured it out in terms of I mean obviously for my quality of life it's great and I can kind of intellectually rationalize to myself that I'm having an impact on people's lives and blah 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 videos and leverage and stuff but that is still part of me that's like feels it feels it feels like not the thing that a good person would do to leave medicine Mm. for the sake of a very high paying YouTuber career
1: yeah I know you love this book show your work and Talk me through what about it was, was so game-changing for you.
0: Yeah, this is one of the most life-changing books I've ever read. Probably the single most life-changing book I've ever read was The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And that was the book that got me on the path of realizing that I could build a business on the side while doing med school and that could potentially make money and I potentially didn't even have to put that many hours into it. But then Show Your Work was probably the second most impactful book. It was... Okay, so essentially since like 2010, I'd wanted to start a personal blog. Because I'd been reading a bunch of personal blogs, I was a fan of Lifehacker, and I think i discovered Seth Godin's blog like years ago. I was like, oh, having a personal blog would be cool, I would love to write on the internet. Uh, this was before you know, your ultimate guide to writing online was a thing, this was before any of these courses existed. I, just, I wanted to start writing online. And five years later, I somehow discovered this book. I have no idea where I discovered it. It might have been on a Lifehacker article or something, or in someone else's blog. But then I read this, and it's like a really short book. It's like not that many pages. It's like mostly like an illustrated picture book kind of thing. And I read this, and immediately this was the book that made me realize, ah, okay, I'm going to start writing online and actually do the thing. Because this book basically taught me that the thing that was holding me back was the fear of, you know, what, what I have to say isn't valuable enough, impo- like all of the imposter syndrome type things. Yeah. But then what Show Your Work taught me is that, you know, 10 Ways to Share Your Creativity and, and Get Discovered was well, basically that you don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be the guru. You can be the guide. He doesn't quite use that terminology. But if you, as long as you document the things that you know or the things that you've done, and you're showing your work, that means you can put yourself out there and you can publish things. And maybe someday people will read those things. And then in the future, they might buy your product, whatever the thing might be. The way you get discovered is by showing your work and by putting it online. I was like, ah, oh, that was the sort of firmware update I needed. Before I was like, oh, I need to create... Uh, long form blog post that's got a lot of value in it afterwards i was like i just need to show my work how hard can that be and this philosophy for the last like eight years now since discovering this book it's still the philosophy of my youtube channel it's show your work it's it's not how to manage your time it's how i manage my time it's in a way still the philosophy of the book um which is hopefully coming out in about six months it's like hey here's what here's what worked for me and here's a load of evidence that it might work for you too maybe give it a go Mm -hmm. it's fundamentally the philosophy of show your work i think i think it's great
1: yeah, one of the things that you often say, which has definitely come from that, is prolific over perfect.
0: I teach this course for YouTubers, the Part-Time YouTuber Academy, and we've, we've, we've had like a couple thousand, 3,000 3, students go through this so far. And the thing that's most surprised me about this is how everyone struggles with perfectionism and everyone struggles with the fear of what their friends and family will think if they start making YouTube videos. And I completely underestimated this. I thought this was just a problem that like high school kids would have like oh you know my friends are going to bully me if I start making YouTube videos but you know there's like you know management consultants there's partners at like senior law firms there's people there's sort of senior managers at Google taking the course who are struggling with what their friends and family and colleagues are going to think if they start a YouTube channel of
1: course.
0: and one of my theories around this is that if you're successful in a domain of life then you want to be successful in every other domain of life like if you're a hotshot entrepreneur or if you're like a big manager in your in your firm and then you start making youtube videos and you suck you're going to feel the pain of that and you're going to worry that other people are going to see the pain of that because you've got this veneer around you this shroud of uh, authority and like kudos and gravitas around you when you start a youtube channel everyone is crap when they first start a youtube channel um and so this perfectionism trap like wanting to be perfect wanting the quality of the videos to be just really high from day one is a thing that holds so many people back. I'd say, you know, probably of the 3,000 people that have taken the course, at least 1,000 probably still haven't published more than five videos because they've just been so held back by this sense of like, oh, the video needs to be good. And so every single session I try and hammer home, I try and tell the stories about like guys, prolific is better than perfect. Quantity is more important than quality in the early days because quantity leads to quality. If you wanna get good at something, you have to put in the reps. You know the whole the parable of the pottery class that from mm-hmm. James Claysburg or you know all of all of these things. You've got to put in the reps in order to get good, and then once you're good, then you can worry about the quality all you like. Mm-hmm. But even then, worry, obsessing about quality holds you back. Yeah. And so get prolific going, over Get going, then perfect. get good. That's the one. Get That's, going, then get good.
1: It's so good. I love that. I love that phrase. It comes from Jack Butcher, and the the thing that we always say with rite of passage students is we're gonna sign you five pieces, and we want to do everything we we can to get you to publish five pieces in five weeks. And I think that people will spend so much time trying to figure out what's the right answer. What's the best platform to publish on. I'm sure there's equivalents for YouTube and they'll get so bogged down in the strategy that they'll forget to just do the actual work Mm. and doing the actual work, showing up and doing the damn thing is the most important thing by far.
0: That's the one. Um, The, the sort of three part framework we teach on, on our courses. Level one is get going. Level two is get good. And level three is get smart. Mm. And strategy comes in level three. And worrying about what my niche is going to be comes in level three. And worrying about monetization comes in level three. That's
1: really good. Get going, get good, get smart. Exactly. I really like that.
0: And people are so held back. Before they've even got going, they're worrying about strategy. They're worrying, is my niche too crowded? They're worrying, why would anyone care what I have to say? It's like, no, no, let's get going, i.e. start just make, making some videos. And then let's get good. So r- make videos or write about whatever you want. And you know you're good at the point where you no longer cringe at your own content. And at Mm. that point, you're good. Cool. That might be 10 videos for some people. It might be 50 videos for some people. But at that point, let's get smart and worry about the strategy. Because the strategy, while you suck at execution, is completely pointless. But strategy, when you're good at execution, suddenly starts to make sense.
1: Yeah, that's funny. Cringe at your own content. What's going on with that? Like, there's sort of two ways to think about what creates cringe. The first is my quality bar is here. But I'm only able to make stuff that's that's this good. So I'm annoyed at my stuff because it's not as good as I know I can. It's not as good as what I think is really good. But I don't know how to get there. Mm. That's one. And then the other element of cringe is I always think of like old people and high frequency sounds. Okay. (laughs) You know, there's like really high frequency sounds that old people can't hear. And then young people or dogs will be like. There's that sound, mm. there's that sound and they can hear it. And it's like you, it is there, it is in the ether, but you can't hear it. And I think that a lot of stuff that's cringe is just, it's like that. It's somebody, something is happening and somebody doesn't have the taste or the awareness to realize what that thing is missing. Mm. And so to someone who has a more trained eye, they see it right away. Yeah. And to somebody else, they're like, what are you talking about?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, so in within Get Good... There's sort of two different barriers that I think of. There's the internal quality and then the external quality. Mm. So the internal quality is I know my videos are good when I no longer cringe at them myself. So that is probably because like either my standards have come down as I've realized how hard it is, or you know hopefully at the same time my own ability has gone up to the point where you know the way I say to my students is if someone, if one of your coworkers came up to you and said, "Oh, I saw one of your YouTube videos the other day." Would you feel, oh, my God, oh, I can't believe it.
1: Run. <laughs> yeah, would,
0: would you feel that, that? That's you cringing at your own content. Or would you feel, oh, cool, how was it? And when, when you get to the point where you're like, oh, cool, how was it? At that point, you, you know you're ready for the strategy. You, you know you're ready to evolve to level three. But as long as you continue to cringe at your own content, there's more work to be done in improving your craft and dealing with your own emotions and insecurities, and strategy does not solve those problems. So that's internal quality. Hmm. But then there's external quality, which is where your videos are starting to get some amount of traction, some amount of views, likes, comments, subscribes. And comments, I think, are the good one, where even on a video with like 20 views, if it's helpful and genuinely useful to someone, they might comment and be like, oh, wow, this was really helpful. That's when you get those indicators of product market fit. Mm -hmm. That's when you've got the external metric for good. And so at the point where your videos either pass the internal quality bar or the external quality bar, one of those, at that point you're ready to think about strategy but not until then.
1: Hmm. How much in your writing and your YouTube videos are you still thinking about discovery-focused content and conversion-focused content? Like, how do you think about, I want to grow my audience first, I want to build my product. I want to provide value to people versus I want to then do more of a marketing or sales pitch.
0: Yeah, good question. Um, We think about them all at the same time. So the way we think about it is the one metric that matters for our entire business, if we think on a weekly cadence, is weekly or monthly views. And so the objective, as it were, is to get weekly view or monthly views as high as possible. I personally don't like to think about this because my whole thing is I just want to make content that I'm proud of and right. stuff. So it's like there's this almost separation I have to do in my own mind of like thinking like a... Uh, thinking like the business owner who cares about the metrics and thinking as the creative who does not want to care about the metrics. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, the thing we care about is is views. Now, we also want to generate sales from our stuff. And sales might mean for our course or it might mean for the book in the future. And the one vehicle that generates all the sales is the email list.
1: I saw you're at 300,000 people on your email list. Yeah,
0: we were at 200,000 last month. And then we did a few things, a few sensible things like lead magnets. And now we're at 300K. (laughs) Uh,
1: From your YouTube channel?
0: Yeah stuff. Man. Yeah, and I'm like, damn, I wish we had done lead magnets like 3 years ago. Um, but like views is the main thing and so the content we're, we're aiming for the content to be discoverable. We want new people to discover the content, but at the same time, we also want existing fans to enjoy the content. And so we sprinkle in Harry Potter references and little easter eggs and I try and sort of make the personality come across as authentic and have a few rituals like, hey friends, welcome back to the channel. It's like a thing that the existing fans can kind of latch on to. And then once a month, in addition to the eight videos we'll produce that month, we'll do a more like personal or chatty video where I'm not expecting that to be discovered by anyone other than just kind of interesting for some of my existing audience. So most of our content aims for breadth in terms of widening the audience, discoverability. Sometimes 10% of the content will aim for just developing that relationship. But every single piece of content now is increasingly starting to have a plug to the email list in some capacity. And usually that's through some sort of lead magnet. So before filming every video, I'm thinking, what is a really good free thing that I can give away as uh, an accessory to this video that will encourage people to click on the link and potentially enter their, enter their email Should address? So do you
1: make new lead magnets for every video? Uh,
0: pretty much. Or if we really can't think about it, we'll plug an old one and find a way Whoa. to like segue it into, the, into the thing. This is relatively recent. This is why in the last month we've gone from 200K to 300K because we've actively thought about this. That, oh, we want every video to basically have an email plug on it. So the views go to the email list. And then we don't really sell on the YouTube channel. We only ever sell to the email list. And that is great because these are people who have opted in to getting emails from us. And then within that, you know, occasionally in my weekly newsletter, I'll say something like, if if I mention, hey, I was in Austin for the Kajabi conference and had a great chat with David Perel where we talked about this, this, writing and growing a YouTube channel. BTW, if you're interested in potentially starting or growing a YouTube channel, click here and I'll send you a free seven-day email course. Sure. Boom, they click on that link, one click, and now we've segmented them into this person has expressed an interest in starting a YouTube channel. Sick. Now that person is going to get a, a few emails sprinkled out around, like, just giving them loads and loads and loads of value. And if they engage with those emails, we'll start sending more emails, giving loads and loads of values, lo- loads of value. And This is an idea I got from you. We've got our sort of 30-day email sequence. Yeah. Uh, That just provides tons and tons of value about how to do a YouTube channel and in some of those emails we say by the way We have a course and so the videos the content is all about discoverable Getting people onto the list and the point of the list is to continue that relationship with the audience in a platform that we own uh, But that we can also sell to without worrying about spamming the YouTube channel with like salesy type stuff
1: Yeah, you used the word creatively fulfilled a few minutes ago What are some of the things that you've done that have given you the most creative fulfillment?
0: learning stuff and then applying it to my life and then sharing it online in some capacity. I get a lot of creative fulfillment out of making... That's what I said earlier. Exactly. Remember I said, the same
1: thing. hey, I get interested in something, yeah. I apply it to my life, I yeah. figure it out, and then I share it with other people. But that's the one. That's yeah. so
0: creatively fulfilling. Like these days I genuinely, I genuinely look forward to Mondays. Like I'll get up on a Monday morning, I'll do my, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get in the shower, I'll do my skincare routine, and like I feel a palpable sense of like urgency because I can't wait to get started with work. Can't wait to go into the studio room where like Angus and Tintin and Bav and Safra are there and I'm hanging out with the team and so I'm going to film something and then we're going to have a little chat where we plan out the videos and it feels so, so fun, so creatively fulfilling. Um, writing the book has been very creatively fulfilling so I definitely want to do more, more writing. Uh, it, th- even like, you know, inter- interviewing people on my podcast is great because I interview people that I want to learn from and, and now I have access to people who I can learn from that I wouldn't have been able to access otherwise. And so I, learn, I ask all the questions I want to ask and I learn from it. And then we mm-hmm. turn it into a YouTube video. Right. All of this stuff just brings me so much joy and energy. Even though I quite enjoyed medicine, I never looked forward to Mondays. And I used to think looking forward to Mondays is a pipe dream. No one looks forward to Mondays because, like, it's a job at the end of the day, right? But now I genuinely do. And I hopefully want to want to keep that going.
1: Oh, that was fun. Thank you.
0: Good session.